Bob, it's uh, great to have you here with us this morning, and um, I'm the senior pastor, so I get the great opportunity of opening up God's Word with you. Thank you, guys. Um, picture up there is from Orlando, Florida. Uh, about a week and a half ago, Katie and I made a whirlwind trip down to Orlando to visit a missions organization called Pioneers, and Pioneers... Uh, focuses their missional efforts on the unreached people groups of the world. Did you know that in all of the world, there are close to 2 billion people who have not only not trusted Jesus, but they don't even know that there is a Jesus to be trusted. Never heard of them. Uh, they've never been exposed to the Bible. They just are going about their lives living um, without... God and purpose in their life. And so, Pioneers, their missional effort is to invest in these people groups. And we were down there to be strategic and just to think uh, grand thoughts about how can the local church participate in this. Um, I was blessed to be down there with this lovely couple, uh, the Fletchers. And uh, cool story, I think I've shared this with many of you before, but Harry's brother, uh, Ted, started this organization. He actually wrote a book about uh, starting it, and you can jot this down if you want to read it. It's an incredible book. It's called When God Comes Calling. And uh, you'll hear a little bit of Ted's story, and you'll actually see Harry featured in the book. Here's a, here's a fun little uh, tidbit to make you want to read it. Um, Ted, uh, Harry's brother, was the youngest um, Wall Street Journal executive in, at the time in the, the 70s, and uh, he and Harry uh, got yelled at because they were distributing tracts in the Wall Street Journal, and I was reading that, I just said, that sounds like Billy Graham Fletcher to me. So uh, it's a great book. Um, but enough on that. We're, our purpose this morning is to open up God's Word and to look at the book of Genesis. So if you would open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 37. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. And Genesis is the first book of the Bible. So if you're not familiar with navigating the Bible, uh, it's good to learn how to do that and uh, the easiest way to think about the Bible is two big parts, an Old Testament and a New Testament. Uh, so that first part, the Old Testament, begins with the book of Genesis. And then you're going to be looking for a big 37, chapter 37. It has been said that we stop truly living when we stop dreaming. I think I very much agree with that statement. I found that in my own life that dreams are what make life vital and alive. Now, I'm not talking about those images that you see when you close your eyes at night and you drift off into REM, you know, like the floating dog that told you that you needed to hike Mount Everest or something like that. No, I'm not talking about those types of dreams. I'm talking about the aspirations, the goals, the future visions that we hold for ourselves. And I believe that every single person in this room has those kind of dreams. And we normally, throughout our life, have many dreams. Some of them are small and 
Some of them are big. The, the smaller dreams of our life, uh, well, those are the type of dreams that we wish would happen, but they don't really ruin our life if they don't happen. I've always had the dream of hiking the Appalachian Trail from start to finish. There's a couple of obstacles. One, namely, I have no idea how to hike, and two, um, no experience of camping out overnight or anything like that. So that's the type of dream, though, that if it didn't happen, well, okay, life moves on, no big deal. But there's other dreams that we have, bigger dreams, that when these dreams shatter around us, so much of our identity is tied into them, our sense of purpose and worth, that it can really destabilize us. Erwin uh, Lutzer shares this, when a big dream is shattered, our portrait of who we are and what we can do is marred, sometimes beyond recognition. The end of a marriage, terminal illness that wipes out our future, the belief usually false that we can never recuperate after experiencing rejection and abuse. Such major disappointments bring our dreams to a crushing end. The future is then feared, not welcomed. And so he asks the question, how do we keep our dreams alive? How do we go on when one or maybe many of our dreams have been shattered? Maybe due to someone else in your life or due to natural circumstances in your life, or maybe you made a sequence of bad choices. If your life doesn't look the way you envisioned it would when you were younger, does that mean that you can no longer fulfill incredible purposes with your life? And I think that's going to be the big question that we will find answered as we look at this story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. If you have looked for a Bible character, and if you're looking and you're asking yourself a question, is there a character whose life didn't turn out the way that they expected it to turn out? You, you have no further to look than the character of Joseph. I mean, he, here is a character in the Bible who lives with a lifetime of consequences due to an act that was perpetrated against him. Yet, he didn't stop. He doesn't give up on hope. He learns through this process as he follows God how to live the unhindered life. How to lean into God's big purposes for our life. As we take this journey, I think you're going to see that Joseph's story can be your story too. You might say to yourself, well, what do I have in common with a guy that lived thousands of years ago? And i got to tell you, not a lot. But there are certain principles about the way that Joseph, Joseph lived, like trust and faithfulness and perseverance that we can, in course, of course, incorporate in our life. But more importantly, the God that Joseph served is the same God who is organizing your life today. And if you learn to walk with this God and trust this God the way Joseph did, you will find great blessing in your life. So let's pick up the story uh, by looking at a little background. When we left off in the book of Genesis, we ended uh, our previous series called Unfinished in Genesis chapter 32. And you might remember that there was that scene where Jacob was wrestling with God and he finally found that transformative experience when he gave up the struggle and let God take over control of his life. 
The next chapter of Genesis 33, Jacob, who had a long-standing feud with his brother Esau, uh, made reconciliation with his brother. Now they're back into the promised land, and everything goes swimmingly, doesn't it? (laughs) It doesn't. You see, all the problems that Jacob had developed in his life outside of the promised land, well, he brought those same problems into the promised land, and uh, those problems transferred on to his children. In Genesis 35, um, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, is out with a man named Shechem, the son of Hamor, and she's raped by him. One of Jacob's big character flaws is passivity. He doesn't do things when he needs to stand up and take control of the situation. So here you have this situation. Jacob does nothing. So two of the sons, Simeon and Levi, they decide that they're going to take matters into their own hands. So they strike a deal with Hamor. They tell Hamor, look, if you guys will submit to the ritual practice of circumcision that we use to relate to our God, then everything's okay. We'll be back in good relationship together. And so Hamor and the entire village, they submit to this practice. And if you're not sure of what circumcision is, I have a picture up on the screen. I can explain. I'm just kidding. We're not going to look at that. I think you know what it is. They submit to the ritual. And while they're healing, Simeon and Levi come into that village and they vent their fury. They kill every male. They take the women, the children, the goods. They bring them out. Kind of sounds like a Hallmark movie, doesn't it? As the story continues in Genesis 36, uh, we learn that Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, died while giving birth to the 12th son, Benjamin. To make matters worse, around this same time, Reuben, the oldest son, decides that he would assert his prominence in the family he took one of Jacob's surrogate wives, Bilhah, and he slept with her. I mean, this is a royal mess. This is like the makings of a Jerry Springer episode, isn't it? That's the world that Joseph is living in right now. Here he is. He's 17 years old. He's living in this mess of a family. And uh, I think we can relate to that. Family can be complicated, can't it? If you have any questions about that, just go to the local bookstore and look at titles. On, uh, does anyone go to the local bookstore anymore? Click a, a, a search on a web engine or something like that or an online bookstore. And basically, when you type in the word family, you're going to find all kinds of different titles about family, aren't you? How can I deal with rejection? How do I deal with bitterness? Especially when I'm living in a, a blended home, how do I deal with the hurt of having an absentee dad? Joseph lived with many of these realities. His mom's buried somewhere between Shechem and, or Bethel and Ephrath. Who was he raised by? We don't know. Was it Leah, Bilhah, Silpah? The Bible doesn't say. Nonetheless, he lives in this blended home of truly yours, mine, and ours. Four wives, four sets of children, lots of open hostility, and guess who everybody hates the most? Our, co- our character. Look at verses 2 to 4 and we'll see this. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. 
He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he had made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they, what, hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Let's consider some of these complicating factors. Factor number one is Jacob's a tattletale, right? He brings a bad report to his father. The Hebrew word report that's used there um, elsewhere in the scriptures is always used of someone telling an untrue report. And so here you have Joseph seeing something that his brothers are doing and He goes back to his father, and he ad-libs a little bit. He exaggerates the story. For what purpose? Well, because he's a spoiled brat, and he wants to get him in trouble. Proverbs says this to us. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. You know, that's the Bible basically saying, don't be a squealer, right? The idea is that Joseph knew that he was daddy's favorite, and he leveraged that against the brothers, which also adds fuel to the fire because being the favorite in a family doesn't generally put you in the position of everybody loving you. It generally creates a dynamic where everybody's jealous of you. And so we see this with Jacob's relationship to Joseph. He's Uh, Joseph is his favorite, and he's not ashamed to flaunt it in front of the brothers. He gives them this coat. Uh, Many of the translations say that it's a multicolored coat. Most likely, it was just like a, a princely robe, right? A robe that would extend down to the wrists and then all the way down to the ankles. The message that Jacob is sending to the rest of the brothers is clear. Guess who's daddy's favorite? He's going to inherit the blessing, He's my number one choice. You're not. Now this blatant favoritism is unconscionable. But when you think about it, we tend to perpetuate the sins of mom and dad. It's true. In fact, um, If there's something that has been generational in your family line, it's most likely, you're not resigned to this, but it's most likely that you will perpetuate it. In fact, it will intensify with you. And if your children perpetuate it, it will intensify more with them. Unless we say something like, I choose to break the cycle, that will be true of us. It's human nature. The environment that you were raised in was an incredibly powerful influence in your life. But it doesn't mean that you have to perpetuate a home filled with yelling, riddled with debt, or given to abusive tendencies. It's wise to understand this. It's wise to look and say that this can be true. Uh, Jacob's father Isaac favored Esau over him. Jacob saw that behavior. He's going to take it into his family. And the only way that we can stop or break the cycle is to look and to see that this is true of our family. And I've got to do something about it. So how do we? How do I break the cycle? Well, 
That's an entirely different sermon in and of itself, but let me give you just a couple of applicational threads as you think about this. The first thought is this, you have to come to terms with the issue. You have to look at it and see it for what it is and say, this is true. There's been anger in my family and it's not been good for my family. You have to call it out for what it is. I think the second step is the harder step, which is that you have to forgive and extend grace to your parents. That can be incredibly hard. What does forgiveness mean? Well, forgiveness does not necessarily mean that you have this healed and open relationship with your parents. Now, they might be incredibly destructive in your life. But there is a way to forgive even if the parameters of the relationship can never go back to being the same again. And if we don't forgive, well then, we stew upon the problem. But forgiveness brings powerful healing to the life of an individual. Finally, and I think this is the most important, you have to trust that God is the great healer, creator, and reconciler. He can work powerful, creative work in your life to change your trajectory. You don't have to be resigned to how your family was. You can strike out into new territory as you trust Him and let Him lead your life. But what if you don't move on? Well then, we will be like Jacob. Jacob chose to perpetuate the sins of his father, and it created a toxic environment in his home. The passage tells us that the brothers couldn't even speak peaceably to Joseph. Isn't that interesting how Jacob is the one who's choosing to make Joseph the favorite, and yet they choose to hate Joseph? That's how favoritism works. If you truly love that son the most, well, you're making his life miserable by making him the favorite. And the text suggests that they can't even walk into the same room as Joseph without making a snide remark or sneering behind his back. And so, this is the tension, and it is rising in the room. And it rises more as Joseph shares a dream. Look at verses 5-11. through 11. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams, for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now in the ancient world, dreams were a common means of divine communication. And uh, they looked at these dreams as prophetic and so when Joseph, uh, if you see in this narrative, they describe dreams, they always come in twos. 
And the reason for that is given to us in Genesis 41:32. It says, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed and that God will shortly bring it about. And so God has given this prophetic insight and he's more than happy to go and share it with his brothers. There's two dreams, right? There's the harvest dream, which I think looks forward to that time when Joseph would feed the world, which was starving during famine. And then there was the celestial dream, which is the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to Joseph. But the, the idea there is those celestial bodies also represented in the ancient world the right to rule. And so it was actually an elevation of the entire family. Now, does Joseph realize what he's doing as he's telling these dreams? Is he trying to make his brothers jealous? I think the answer is yes. I really do. You, you get kind of two stories with Joseph. The first story is, oh, he's this naive, innocent, pure boy, and, and he doesn't have an edge of pride. There's nothing in him that, that would make him want to make his brothers jealous. But I don't read the story that way. As I look at the story, I see a man who is immature and unwise, who's been given an incredible gift by God. Can you imagine being given the ability to see pictures of the future and told that you were going to be in a position of prominence over your brothers. It appears that he tells the dreams to soak his own ego. R.T. Kendall makes this wise observation of human nature when he says this, the hasty conclusion most of us come to when God shows us something is that he is doing it for our own sake. We are so enamored of ourselves. If God shows us something, it often plays right into our egoistic desires and we seldom look any further. Here's the point, church. God doesn't give you gifts for the small purpose of inflating your ego. That's not why God gave you a gift. He's not interested in making me look good, me feel good, me to be number one. That's not God's purpose when he gives any one of us a gift. It's always about the glory of God and the blessing of others. So can you sing? Why did God give you the ability to sing? It wasn't to go on to uh, America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent or American Idol to impress Simon Cowell. Why did God give you sharp and shrewd financial sense? It wasn't primarily for the purpose of making you rich. Why did God give you insight into political savvy and organizational agility and the ability to manage and lead well in a company? It wasn't primarily for the purpose of your career pathway. It was for God's glory and the blessing of others. God gives us gifts so that we can be instruments to bring about those purposes. And I don't think that Joseph understood this yet. I think he was young. I think he was gifted. He was attractive. And he had an edge of pride. So his brothers hate him. The passage repeats this multiple times. They hated him, verse 4. They hated him, verse 5. They hated him even more, verse 8. And it also says in verse 11 that they were jealous of him. 
And we know that hatred is in a powerful emotion. If we give ourselves to this emotion, it begins with uh, first this internal passive-aggressive tendency. But then the emotion of hatred, if you continue to feed it, will always reach outside of yourself into a boiling point. It will become actions. And that's what happens as the story moves forward. Let's pick up verses 12 to 14. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now. See if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now, does that name Shechem ring a bell to you at all? Oh yeah, that was the place where Simeon and Levi slaughtered everyone. I wonder why Joseph is, or Jacob's a little concerned, and he wants to send Joseph. Now, obviously, Jacob and Joseph don't clearly understand the underlying current, do they? Uh, They're not convinced that the brothers hate Joseph as much as they do. Otherwise, Jacob never would have sent Joseph 50 miles away from home outside of his watch care. You know, it's impossible to know when your life will change forever. If anyone had the ability to know that, well, they would be very successful, wouldn't they? You can't predict when one of your dreams will be shattered. There'll be little forewarning. It might be just the simple act of getting into your car and driving down to the convenience store or the fateful choice that in midpoint of your career you're going to change your job location. Or that day when you've kind of been operating in life in that messed up work-life balance and you, you come home to an empty home. Boy, for Joseph, it was a simple fact-finding mission. He sets out on this journey, and he will never, ever return to live with his father in the tents and home again. In fact, the first time that Joseph will return back to the promised land after this trip will be when his bones are carried back by the Hebrews some 400 years later. And Jacob would live to regret that he didn't intervene. Chuck Swindoll shares this important piece of counsel for parents. We have to deal with attitudes as severely as we deal with actions. Christian parents learn that. Come down hard on wrong attitudes. But when you catch those beautiful glimpses of right attitudes, reward, build up. Of course, in order to do that and to be a consistent role model, your own attitude must be right. Well, Jacob didn't see that. Jacob was passive. Jacob didn't intervene. And so that would cost him dearly. The story picks up with Joseph arriving at Shechem. It tells us this, And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Please, uh, tell me where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, 
They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now Dothan is another 13 miles, so the noose is tightening around Joseph's neck. Now he is not 50 miles away from his father, but he is 63 miles away from his father's protective care. And like a pack of savage beasts, the brothers seek to seize the opportunity. Verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Look at the contempt they have for him. You hear it in the nickname. Here comes this dreamer. What kind of things have to happen in the human heart for a person to kill another person? Especially a family member to want to kill another family member. I think one of the most disturbing uh, literary devices in this story is the fact that the repetition of the word brother the word brother is repeated 21 times. This is not a random act of violence. This is pure premeditated evil. Evil that could only come from hearts that have been feeding on morsels of hatred for months, even years. I imagine that Simeon or Levi led the charge, their hands uh, stained with blood. What's another life to them? And so they say, let's kill the little brat. Let's be rid of him. We don't need him in our life anymore. And as they start to speak along these lines, Reuben jumps in and he intervenes. Verse 21, Reuben heard it and he rescued them out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. His purpose was that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to the Father. Now, Reuben is, well, he's not a very good leader either. What should he have done? No, you're not going to do this. I'm going to grab Joseph's hand. I'm walking him back to Dad. This is not happening right now. But instead, he doesn't really stand up. He suggests they throw him in the pit, and he's going to come back and kind of secret himself to the location later and rescue Joseph. So the story continues. Joseph came to his brothers. They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat. He sees him like, violent dogs. They tear his cloak off of his body, that cloak that they hated, that become a symbol of dad's favoritism. And like a pack of wild animals, after throwing him into the pit, they sit down and they feed upon the food that likely Joseph brought as provisions from his father. The poor lad must have been terrified he was thrown into a pit. Uh, the pits were these hewn-out rocks, and Moses is uh, a very good narrator. He makes sure to let us know that there's no water in the pit. 
which meant that Joseph could have been as deep as 20 feet in the ground. It was a man-made dungeon to him. And as he dusted himself off from the fall, I just imagine this young man pitifully crying up for help, saying, come on, let me out of here, guys. And instead of receiving a rope down to himself, he hears this vicious plot that's beginning to form amongst the brothers. Judah is the first to take charge. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? So Joseph is probably thinking, maybe he's going to step in and, and intervene in this situation and save me. But no, he continues to hear that Judah is suggesting something worse than death for him. Come. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our what? Brother. There's that word again. I imagine the wails from the pit. Judah, please don't sell me. Dan, Levi, Simeon, someone, please. I'm sorry for flaunting my dream. I won't do it again. Please just don't do this to me. Almost 20 years later, the brothers would remember their hard-heartedness. In Genesis 42-21, they confess, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. And at 20 shekels, they sell him for less than the normal rate of a slave it's well documented during this time period that Asiatic slaves were often taken down to Egypt and uh, they might have been captives of war or they might have been just simply taken from Mesopotamia or the Palestine region. And so Joseph was brought into this wicked, horrible industry. As the story continues, we learn again that Reuben is an inept leader he comes back to the scene and is shocked when he returns. The story picks up, verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Think about the, the consequences of this day. Just think about it. The boys come back and they deceive Jacob. It's interesting that Moses highlights the fact that they used goat's blood. Isn't it ironic? Isn't that what Jacob used to deceive his father for the birthright? 
And so when he believes that Joseph is dead, it sends the man into a deep depression, a deep depression that he wouldn't recover from for the next 20 years of his life. And so the consequences then extend into the sons because they know that they've done something. And for 20 years, they have to watch their father, whom I believe that they actually loved, suffer. And there's nothing that they can do about it. They can't tell him about what they've done. They just have to live in the consequences of this decision. Of course, you think of Joseph, verse 36. The Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. We don't know how Joseph responded when they chained him to some kind of beast of burden and they dragged his body down to Egypt. Did he cry when he stood up on the auction block and, and uh, he was examined like a piece of property and then sold off into human slavery? But I suspect that he struggled greatly with deep questions. How could my life come to this? God showed me a dream that I was going to be great and, and now I am the opposite of great. I am no longer even human. I'm a piece of property. There's nothing more crushing than watching one of your dreams shattered in front of your own eyes. And where's God? Was God walking with Joseph as he's carried down to Egypt? Did he stand up next to him on the auction block? Was he with Joseph as he was bent in servitude under the cruel gaze of a master? And as we think about this, then we ask ourselves the question, where is God when my dreams are shattered. As Katie and I came back on the plane from Orlando, Florida, um, we're flying into uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and the flight was supposed to leave at 8 p.m., but it was delayed until 10.30. So we were dog-tired when we got onto the plane. The flight attendant... Um, she made a, uh, an announcement that made us both kind of jump in our seats for joy. She said, look, the flight's only half full. Everybody can spread out and be comfortable. And so fist pumping, yes, we're going to get to sleep, and then we can drive home. But I'll tell you what, this guy gets onto the plane. He's the last guy on the plane. He's looking through the rows of the plane. There's empty spots, and what does he do? He chooses to plunk right down next to us. I'm not going to lie. I felt a little frustrated in the moment. But then I remembered the spiritual truth, the spiritual reality that at times God gives us divine appointments. And when God gives you a divine appointment, you have one of two choices. You can either accept it or you can reject it. I could have either went into my introvert space and read my book and ignored him, or we could have conversed with him and Katie, who is a much better Christian than I am, <laughs> offered the man a stick of gum and we struck up a conversation. What made it worse was he was obviously drunk. Katie and he were conversing. He would ask her a question. She would tell him the answer to the question. He would kind of slur out some kind of response and then a minute later would circle back, ask the same question again, had completely forgot what she had said. 
As we continued to speak, he asked me, what do I do? Where am I from? I told him I was from Cape Cod and that I'm a pastor there. And I could see that that kind of startled him a little bit, that he was sitting next to a pastor while drunk. As we continued the conversation, I began to realize why this man was drunk. He was dealing with a significant shattered dream. He had lost his son a year or so ago. He was only 35. He'd intended mass his entire life, this this man, and he believed that if I just showed up, that my life would go well for me. Yet here he was living with the reality of a lost son and the frustration of seeing hypocrisy play out in his own church the abuse scandals. And so the conversation went from the surface down to the depths of the well. And he started asking questions that you ask when you're in a place like this. He said, why do good people have bad things happen to them and bad people seem to do just fine? So we started talking and we talked about Jesus and we talked about our fallen state. And I asked him, you know, If we're all basically good, why would God send his son into the world to be beaten and bruised the way he was? And we started talking about these leaders that he was frustrated with, and I said, you know, they're they're fallen just like you are, just like I am. In fact, one of the big problems is they don't have accountability structures around them because we we lift them up on pedestals that no human can 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 be lifted upon. And we started talking about the gospel. As I unpacked the gospel, he laid the question on me. He said, here's the million dollar question. Why would God take my son? Why? I said, I'm not going to give you the answer to that question. I'm not going to give you an answer that you want to hear. You want me to give you an answer that will make sense to you and that will satisfy your anger with God? I can't do that for you. I won't do you the disservice of offering up my conjecture as to why God did something. The best answer that I can give you, friend, is I don't know why God took your son. God's plans and ways are much bigger than my ability to comprehend in the one piece of advice that I can offer you about God, this is what I've come to know and, and can deeply, deeply say that I believe in my heart, is that God is good and that God would never take your son for no purpose at all. You see, we minimize his death by believing that he died for no reason. Now, I'm not sure how those words hit him, but I trust that God put us in the same row And uh, when the plane ride ended, he actually gave us both a big hug. And uh, I don't know if I'll ever see him again. But I pray that he finds hope because that was a desperate place to be. It just broke my heart for him. As we conclude, I want to offer you three perspectives, and we'll do this quickly. Three perspectives to process our shattered dreams. The first is this. I want to suggest to you that we do not struggle with having dreams that are too big, but dreams that are far too small. 
If Joseph's dream for Joseph was to be prominent and, and big amongst his family, that's a small dream, church. That's incredibly small. God's plans, God's dreams are far grander. How is God's dream grander? Well, Joseph's dreams about himself, God's dreams about the restoration of a family and the salvation of nations who would enter into starvation via famine. Secondly, God cares just as much about the process as he does the final product. A.W. Tozer has once said this, it is doubtful that God can greatly use a man until he has greatly hurt him. How could Joseph at 17, full of cockiness and all that he was full of, possibly be entrusted with the food sources for the entire world? You see, when our platform becomes greater than our character, we abuse our platform. So God would have to send the man into servitude. He'd have to humble the man. He'd have to grow his heart. Thirdly, God's dreams for your life cannot be thwarted no matter how dire your circumstances look. Notice that I said God's dreams. This means that your life is in God's hands and that it is unhindered whether you have a past that feels inescapable to you or you are presently going through deep pain or you are fearful of what the future holds. As it turns out, God can take those shattered dreams, he can take that pain, he can turn that tragedy into something beautiful. And Joseph doesn't see that right now. How could he? How can anyone see the end product while we're at the beginning or in the middle? While we cannot see it, we can trust that God's dreams for our life cannot be thwarted no matter the circumstances because he is the one who keeps our dreams alive. So what does that mean for Joseph? Well, we have to keep reading the story. What does that mean for you? Well, your story's still playing out too. Let me ask you one final question. Who do you want to be the narrator of your life? You see, the narrator of a story doesn't just tell the story, but they what? They expose the meaning of the story. In fact, I would say that they imbue the story with meaning. If I choose to be the narrator of my life, the meaning of my life will be incredibly small. But if I allow the divine narrator to become the narrator of my life, then God's global grand purposes will be imbued into your life. Well, how do you do that? The Bible says that the first step to allowing God to be the narrator of your life is to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says that Jesus is the gate. He's the doorway. He's the access into a right relationship with God. And so no matter how big of a mess you've made of your life, no matter how um, much you have deviated from God's purposes in your life, the Bible says that when a person puts their faith in Jesus, believe that he died on the cross for their sins, believe that God raised them up to new life, they will be saved. 
So my question to you is, is God the narrator of your life? And if he's not, do you want to invite him into that? Would you bow your heads with me?